welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Hello everyone, this is Steve Clark. Thanks for tuning into the show today. Really appreciate you joining our podcast. Today as usual, I have a great friend and coaching colleague with me. I'm not only excited to connect with a, with a friend, but to tap his expertise on the mental side of tennis. And today I have Dr. Alan Fox, uh, Coach Fox, with me. So let me give you a brief, um, if, if that's possible, uh, introduction. And uh, he's walking around his living room. He d- it's raining down there in San Luis Obispo. So if you hear him, uh, he's, he's, I think he's trying to walk um, about a couple hundred miles throughout his living room. But uh, uh, as a collegian, uh, Alan was in 1961. He graduated uh, from UCLA with a BA. They didn't have BSs back then in physics. Um, and then he had, um, is that true? Maybe not. Oh, okay. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't remember whether there was a BS. I don't know why I got a BA, but that's yeah. what I got. Yeah. And then a PhD in psychology in 1968. He won the NCAA singles title in 61 and the doubles title in 60. Uh, he's UCLA athlete of the year. Uh, and he was the all university of California athlete of the year as well. That's pretty amazing. You know, there weren't, uh, probably a few schools uh, like UC Irvine, UC Riverside didn't exist back then, but, uh, that's a pretty, uh, tall task to be the all athlete of all the UCs. Um, and in 1962 in the pros, he was the winner of the national hard courts, a three-time Davis cup team member, quarter finalist of Wimbledon, uh, the Canadian national singles champion, uh, the champion of the Pacific Southwest singles, um, beating Grand Slam winners such as Roy Emerson, Fred Stolle, Tony Roche, etc. Um, as a coach, he was uh, he basically built the Pepperdine University tennis program, had 10 consecutive top five NCAA finishes, uh, two NCAA finalist teams. He coached Brad Gilbert. For those of you who know who Brad is, on, a, he's a TV analyst for the ATP. Uh, he coached Glenn Michibata. Uh, Kelly Jones, um, and uh, had a hand in the mental development of John McEnroe. I'm sure that was towards the end of his career where he got a little better handle on his mental aspects. And um, he's a speaker, writer, uh, has several books, uh, of which uh, several of them are on my website. And he's a three-time Hall of Fame uh, inductee in the Southern California Tennis Association, the Intercollegiate Tennis Coaches Association, and UCLA Hall of Fame. So with that and many more things, I'll stop there. But uh, just wanted to welcome you, Alan, and uh, uh, the, w- the listeners are in for a treat. So just how are you doing? Well, not too bad, actually, as long as nothing's fallen off lately. So I'm, <laughs> I'm a happy guy. Uh, I'm happy to talk to you and and uh, Dr. Clark. It's always nice to talk to uh, uh, PhDs. So uh, fire up. Let's okay, we'll, we'll jump into some uh, mental tennis stuff if you. Good, wish. I appreciate it. And just for people uh, listening, uh, just uh, the days that uh, when he was coaching at Pepperdine, we'd go up there and play, and uh, Alan just as kind of the putting the person to the uh, the experience. 
extremely competitive. Uh, we'd hit on the court and just uh, the type of guy that, uh, you know, wouldn't miss and just enjoy get out there and hitting. So uh, uh, it's nice to have the, the, the practical uh, backbone, as you can tell uh, from all of his accolades, but uh, not only that, but the, uh, the mental side of it. So it's, this is going to be fun. Well, it, it was intimidating hitting with you, Steve. I think he used to take your shirt off, and there was a, an enormous flexing of muscles. That, <laughs> that, that sort of threw me off a little bit. The, uh, yeah, Southern Cal weather can do that, huh? Okay, well, the, one, of the fir- one of the first things I want to ask, Alan, if you could share with our listeners is, uh, you know, I went through that whole bio, but I didn't mention uh, much on the, on the juniors. Can you fill us in on your junior experience? Did you play only tennis? What other interests did you have? And did you have confidence naturally as a kid? Uh, no, I didn't have confidence naturally as a kid. I, I was a medium athlete. Uh, not a bad athlete, but not a good one, particularly. I, I would be chosen by the other kids in these pickup games of basketball or touch football or something. So I wasn't sitting on the bench, but I wasn't uh, outstanding at all. And uh, tennis, uh, I focused on tennis. I mean, I played some basketball. I was not bad at it, but not not what I would consider very good, or no one else considered me very good either. <laughs> uh-huh. But tennis, I I took to. I started late, by the way. I started. I was almost fourteen when I started playing. Uh, and and I improved relatively quickly. I was always surprised, by the way, that, that I got as good as I got, uh, considering that I wasn't that good an athlete. I was a medium athlete, and 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 I became a world class tennis player. And I couldn't figure out why that was. I thought, you know, the Lord must have touched me in some way, you know, that I I was given some sort of special gift. But that wasn't the case at all when I analyzed the situation. Uh, what really did it, there were you know, two things that helped me get really good. Number one was I understood immediately and early that the more tennis balls I hit, the better I was going to get. And so I would spend every minute on the court that I could. And during the summers, I would get up in the morning at 7.30 and play from 7.30 in the morning till it was too dark to see. And so I hit three times as many tennis balls as any of my contemporaries, I'm sure. Uh, and so, yeah, it's repetition. I, 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 of course, I realized that. But I hadn't, I hadn't like, identified the idea that the other guys, most people don't like to practice six hours a day like I did or more. Uh, so that was point one. Point, point two, uh, tennis is somewhat of a technical game. Uh, similar, you know, I, I guess the, the most technical games would be something like bowling or golf, where you, you, you want a repetitious uh, set of physical actions, where you repeat it over and over exactly the same. Like bowling would be your ideal or... Uh, very strongly repetitious sport where over and over you just want to be a mechanical arm. Uh, tennis is somewhat like that. You have the movement aspect, but the strokes are essentially you'd like to do them all the same. 
you want to get to the ball and use the exact same stroke every time so you don't miss. And so, for you know, it, it was the kind of sport for a medium athlete who has uh, whatever, the ability or desire to repeat over and over the stroke. And then the one other thing that I did have was I understood technically how to do it. Uh, I guess the same nature that made me good in physics uh, made me good at understanding technically how to hit the ball. I knew how to how to drill, and, and I came up with drills that would allow me to repeat over and over some action. And and, uh, and did you have uh, who'd you who'd you do those drills with? Did you have a coach or was somebody anybody, else? Anybody? No, yeah, anybody. No, I didn't have a coach. Right. We, you know, coaching was not uh, at the same level it is now, where you have lots of coaches. We didn't have lots of coaches, so uh, I basically virtually had no coaching. You, you had to figure it out yourself, right. which actually, for whatever reasons, I was good at it. I mean, probably overall it was an advantage to me because the other guys didn't have any coaching either. Uh, but they may not been quite as good at figuring it out as I was. Uh, for instance, uh, back in my day, in the 50s and 60s, uh, most of the best players in the world sliced their backhand. Okay, I mean, Pancho Gonzalez sliced it, Kramer sliced it. Uh, most of them sliced their backhands, uh, and 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 I knew not to. I knew to hit topspin on my backhand. How I'm not sure. I guess it was obvious to me that if you hit topspin, you could hit it harder and keep it in the course. You know, the mm-hmm. slice you can only only hit so hard, and it it wants to sail. So I had the advantage of having a topspin backhand in the day when other people didn't have one. Uh, so point one. Point two, I, I, I tactically, I understood the game tactically well. Uh, whatever. I, I, I knew how to volley. I knew how to get good at the net, and, 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 and I knew where to hit the ball. And so these were the advantages I had. Athletic ability was not one of them, unfortunately. Yeah. So good. Well, as far as it went. Yeah. Related to that, could you give us an example of a, you know, as a player at any level, but of a good, uh, bad, and ugly that you might have experienced mentally on the court? Yeah. Like for example, uh, you know, some great matches mentally or not for you, or possibly other players' perspective that you played. You know, so maybe the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, I wish I had known what I when I was playing what I know now. Of course, <laughs> that goes for everything in life, but but tennis being one of them. I mean, uh, I, I would say I had uh, most of my matches. I did understand one thing, and that was I understood basically to control myself emotionally. I had figured out that it's best to not have any emotional reaction at the end of a point. That way you can sort of play point after point and stay in there, sort of keep your game level. Now, did you figure uh, that out that. by your nature because you lost your temper and, you, you, in other words, you go, oh, that wasn't good, I you know, lost my cool, so that what, is that what helped you keep your cool or was it uh, just by your nature of kind of who you were? No, it was, it was learning. I, uh, you know, you, you bang your head against the wall, it hurts, and then you <laughs> go, well, 
maybe I should stop banging my head against the wall. I mean, <laughs> somewhat like that. I mean, I lost plenty of matches getting angry. Uh, I didn't tend to get discouraged. I did get angry, though, because I was so motivated. Uh, and, I, and I learned after a while, hey, wait a second. If I do this, I'm just going to lose the match. You know, so I better not do that anymore. Uh, the emotions are an interesting one uh, because when you're competing, when you're playing a match, you're not learning how to play anymore. In other words, your strokes are whatever they are. Uh, you're basically trying to control emotion and your focus when you're playing a match. In practice, you, you're trying to learn habits. But in the match, the habits are whatever they are. And so now it's emotional control. And I hadn't I, I really identified well uh, that, that the emotions are fast. They tend to react quicker than, than your thinking part of your brain. So you have to be like ahead of the emotions. So sometimes the emotions will get away from me. I, I have to admit, I had some ugly matches. Uh, <laughs> You know, like everybody does. Right. So well, I'd like to redo a few of them, but yeah. not going to be. Right. You know, I, yeah, that's a good segue into getting into the book. And, and I'm going to be kind of using uh, your one book, Tennis, Winning the Mental Matches, kind of a, as an outline for some of the questions here um, for the folks listening. And you can get that on the uh, website, um, which is uh, uh, you can go to coach steve clark phd.com and the resources and you can uh, click on one of the figures of his books and uh, you can purchase it but um you know you mentioned that aggression and competition are linked to fear you know or why you know why we want to why we want to win and there's and and much of the book is uh, it seems like it's how to reduce that fear or those those uh, anxious emotions and in chapter two, you say emotions are often counterproductive in tennis. Our nervous systems are not predisposed to exert fine motor skills for long periods of time. So basically, it's figuring out how to do that. Um, maybe you can just uh, expand on that. Or well, uh, tennis is tapping into certain certain programmed emotions that virtually everybody has uh, that makes tennis somewhat difficult emotionally. And that is, we're a hierarchical creature. We're a social animal, human being, like chimpanzees or wolves. And all social animals uh, have hierarchies. In other words, some individuals in the group are ranked higher than others. That occurs in all species. And it's, it's adaptive uh, and, a, and, and a benefit to be ranked high. Okay. Uh, we could get off the tennis court about that on that issue and just sort of think about the business world. And uh, everybody, you know, in the business world, the rankings uh, and status are determined by money. You know, that's why you get a businessman that's got a billion dollars and he wants two billion. He doesn't need the second billion. He didn't need most of the first billion. <laughs> right. But, but, but that ranks him higher. In other words, he'd like to be ranked as high as possible, just like tennis players. And so the more money you have, the higher your ranking goes, the more people you pass. And so uh, tennis, it, it, it's a very direct uh, threat to your, uh, your ranking. In other words, you play this person, and one of the two of you is going to win. 
and and that person's going to be the superior person, and uh, the person that loses is now the inferior person, at least as far as tennis goes, and that doesn't feel good. Nobody wants to be the inferior person. All of us want to be the superior one. We want to be ranked higher. Uh, I mean, I could tell you why, if we had enough time, uh, why it's adaptive to be ranked high. Uh, but it, it, it is adaptive to be ranked high. In other words, it, it helps your survival, or it did at one time right. uh, when we were evolving. Now, of course, it doesn't make any difference or much. Uh, but anyway, you, you've got this urge to, to uh, be the superior one. And so that, that's quite a powerful one. And, and, and when that is slipping away or you lose, tennis is a very painful sport to lose. I used to, I used to tell my team guys at Pepperdine, I'd say, you know, tennis would really be a fun game if losing wasn't so unpleasant, you know. Uh, unfortunately, that's part of the payment you, you, you make when you compete in tennis. You have to take your risks about losing. But it's extremely painful uh, and tends to get emotional. The you know, urge to be the dominant winning uh, person is powerful. Of course, we see that in other sports, too. Just that in tennis, it's just you out there. There's nobody else. To, you can't get benched. You can't get swapped out. You know, it's just basically you taking care of everything. Um, yeah, and yeah. the other guy's trying to screw you up on top of it. Right. You, you're, you're, it's not like golf where you're playing against an inanimate uh, object or situation. In tennis, you've got somebody, an opponent, an antagonist on the other side that's fighting you and trying to beat you down one way or another, trying to get the upper hand on you. Uh, and that's part of that feeling of, of superiority or inferiority that you get. When someone is dominating you in tennis, it's very unpleasant. Yeah, I like what you say. You yeah, you, you call it a one-on-one non-contact fist fight. You know, that's uh, you know, and and the the the, out, the outcome is uncontrollable. I mean, you you know, ultimately, you know, I mean, you, you that's the whole point. You're trying to uh, wield control and have you know patterns and you know your strategies. You're trying to control it. But, you know, that's why there's even any kind of stress is because ultimately when you walk out there, that's why you play the game. If, 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 there were, if we all knew the outcome, you just, you know, roll out the seeds, make the tournament, just shake hands. You go, okay, the number one seed, two seed, play in the final, everybody else go home. No, you got to play. And that's because yeah. there's a, there's a, it's not a really obvious outcome. Yeah, it's an interesting one in that the, uh, the thing about tennis that causes the stress Tennis matches can be very stressful, uh, and, and what causes the stress is the risk. In other words, you're, you're at risk. You, if you play somebody that's good, that's as good as you are or better, I mean, there's, there's risk of loss, and, and most players are trying to reduce that risk. I mean, you're playing the numbers. You're trying to play the percentages, and so you can reduce your risk of losing, and and when I think about risk, it's an interesting one because risk is part of the nature of the game, uh, uh, although players are trying to get rid of it. They would like to be certain they're going to win, okay? Uh, then the stress would go away. Uh, but when you think about it, if you were certain to win, if, if uh, in some way you could be guaranteed you were going to win every time, it, you'd end up very rich, of course, 
because <laughs> you'd be the best player in the world. Uh, but all the fun would go out of it. Okay, and when you think about, you, you, you look at a, a at a Federer. Okay, he, he wins the U.S. Open or the Australian. I mean, he falls down on the court. He's in tears of joy and excitement because he's won the match. But but what what led to that rush was the risk. In other words, he was at risk during the whole match, which he very well knew. And so when it was over and he won, the risk all went away, uh, and there was an explosion of you know positive excitement because he triumphed over it. If you didn't have the risk, there wouldn't be any triumph. It wouldn't feel like that. I mean, you just you'd walk through it. Uh, it would be no fun at all. And and essentially, you started playing tennis, all of us, for the fun of it. And and the risk is involved in the fun. Uh, a good example might be something like Monopoly. If I guaranteed you that you were going to win, that there was no risk when you play a Monopoly game, you wouldn't bother to play it. I mean, what would be the point? You know, the risk is, is what makes games interesting. And so right. as much as we might like to cut down the risk or you know, stack the odds in our own favor, the risk is a necessary part of the sport. And it's best, actually, if you can maybe enjoy it or you can, uh, during the process, you know, the uh, nervousness or excitement uh, is involving risk, which is a positive element in the process. So it would be a different way to look at it more positively since you can't get rid of it anyway. Better right. to right. You mentioned, look at it yeah. positively. And you mentioned that you know, you know, the, the stress involved in this, and you know, that's why people develop defense mechanisms. You know, uh, for example, whether they get angry or tanking or giving up. Uh, you know, you even hear them like, "Well, I lost focus, or I got bored, or you know, he treated, or you know, they make these excuses. They make excuses. these excuses, and uh, yeah. you know, you you talk about uh, the urge uh, to to get rid of this pressure is is really powerful, and I think you, you give an example of Ivan Isovich uh, one time, and and then I think you went on to say successful players resist the excuses by recognizing that problems are simply part of the game. The job is to do their best to solve them. Um, so, so uh, you know, to reduce that stress as much as possible, um, how do you reduce that? And maybe give that example of Ivan Isovich, if you remember that. Uh, but uh, oh, how do we I reduce that it. stress? <laughs> well, it, it, of course, it is natural to try to reduce the stress because in important tennis matches or matches we really want to win, uh, it gets pretty stressful because of the uncertainty. And so there is an unconscious urge to reduce the stress because high, high levels of stress for long periods of time are very unpleasant. So th- there's a natural urge to reduce it, uh, which is why people tank. Uh, because, you, you know, whenever a person does anything, there's always a reason why they do it. Nobody does anything for no reason whatsoever. There's always a reason. But quite often we don't know what the reason is. Uh, so when you say, why would a person tank? Particularly, say, in the finals of Wimbledon, you know, when you have uh, a, a, an Ivanicevic playing Sampras years ago, uh, and he lost the first set 7-6. He lost the second set 7-6. Uh, 
And then the third set, he lost six love. And so you know what happened. And that is he got discouraged, basically tanked the third set. Now, when I use the word tanked, I don't mean that he hit every ball out on purpose. I just mean he took his foot off the gas. All you've got to do is relax your grip, lower your intensity, uh, and you'll lose six love against a good player. So he, he did that. He, he took his foot off the gas. Uh, uh, and then you have to say, now, why did he do that? What did he, what did he gain? And, of course, what he gained was he reduced his stress. The uncertainty of the match went away. Now it became certain he's going to lose. <laughs> right. So, his, mm-hmm. you know, uh, despite the fact that it's very impractical, it did lower his stress. I mean, you're not stressed when you're tanking. You know, you're stressed when you're trying to win and not sure you're going to. Right. It's, not, it's so, like not studying for an exam. You go, ah, I didn't study anyway. So, basically, your excuse, uh, you, you build a excuse. Yeah, you build an excuse which makes you feel better about getting the F, I guess. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, it's not practical. <laughs> but but when you analyze that situation with even each of it, you know, when you really think uh, about what he did, it it, it it is somewhat mind-boggling of how powerful these defense mechanisms are. For instance, he, he, he is down two sets to love against Sampras in the final. Okay, all he's got to do to win the match is win three sets, okay, which is what he had to do when he walked out in the court. Uh, so if he didn't think he could win three sets, you know, why did he play? Point one. Point two is he's got a better chance of winning the tournament in the final than he had two weeks earlier when the tournament started. So it wasn't the fact that his chances of winning are so small that made him tank. You know, it was the stress reduction. And and look what he gave up. He gave up the chance for millions of dollars. If he wins that match, he wins millions of dollars. Uh, he's in the record books forever. He's famous in his country. And, and, and that's what he gives up when he tanks. And you say, well, okay, he gives that up. What does he get? Not much. <laughs> Just some stress reduction. I mean, that's a heck of a decision to make where you give up millions of dollars, your chance to win millions of dollars and worldwide fame and so forth, you give that up all just to reduce your stress. But it's an indication of how powerful the drive to reduce the stress is, or can be. I mean, what he did was crazy. I mean, why wouldn't you just try? (laughs) Yes. yeah, when the mind, yeah, when the emotions take over, it's amazing what the uh, the mind just kind of doesn't grasp the obvious. And that's an excellent segue into the the next chapter because you talk about using emotions to help you win. And you said here, you said your level of play will generally follow your emotions. Positive emotions do not guarantee good play, but it's more likely. Um, maybe you could just expand on that uh, because that I think that's a great point. Well, uh, yeah, and when you think about it, of course, it's somewhat obvious. Uh, not at the moment, but it's obvious sitting here uh, <laughs> right. thinking about it. Right. Uh, and, and, not and to the player when he's screaming to himself, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not so obvious when you're out there losing and you, you, the guy just got a let cord to break your serve. Uh, but but uh, I guess the, 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 
I lost my train of thought for there for a second. Oh, sorry about the positive emotions don't guarantee good play, but they're more likely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're, you're basically playing a probability, uh, a probability game. There's no uh, guarantees of any sort, but you can sort of stack the odds in your favor by uh, making sure the emotions are positive. I mean, you can make them positive. Uh, people have various ways of doing it. I knew how to do it. I could do it. Uh, and all the great players, no, I wasn't a great player, but I knew how to do it. Uh, but but they all know how to create emotions that are, that are you know, uh, hopeful, that are uh, slightly excited, the, the, that good feeling when you're playing well. Uh, you can You can create it. Uh, with practice and experience, if you're aware that it's necessary to do that. Uh, for instance, you just let nature take its course, and you don't interpose with the smart part of your brain, you will react emotionally. Uh, and when things are going badly, you'll get angry, or you'll get discouraged, uh, or you'll make excuses, lose track of the the object of it all, like even Isavik did. Uh, and so... It, it, you you have to like keep in mind that you're you're just trying to stack the deck in your favor as best you can. Uh, right. Easier said than done, of course. Right, right. It, you you mentioned uh, related to that. You mentioned in chapter four about the topic of reducing the stress. Uh, you mentioned you know one of the things to do. Uh, you know, because of this uncertainty, is to accept the match outcomes are never completely controllable, um, and you know, too much, too much uh, goal focus is stressful. You know, it's self-imposed pressure. Um, you know, but you talk about then you say there are always better players, and you just keep getting better, etc. Um, you know, maybe just expand on that because some people would say, well, you know. Uh, you never want to over-respect your opponent, that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, the, the the pain of loss should motivate improvement. And I think a lot of people get stuck, you know, in not getting, not having the process, the overall uh, long run in, in mind. Yeah, I think uh, you can make it a lot easier on yourself. I, I, I would say that one of my weaknesses was that I was not easy on myself. Uh, if I had it to do all over again, I, I, I would change the way I approached the whole thing. Uh, number one, after I lost, you know, I would lock myself in my room. I wouldn't want to speak to anybody. I wouldn't want to come out. And I would beat myself up for a while. <laughs> because I had disappointed myself. But isn't that, is that, up. wouldn't that be a characteristic of many uh, champions? Because they're just so yes. driven to win. I mean, not we don't want to yeah, sit in our room. You don't want to sit in your room and beat yourself up. But uh, isn't that that total disdain for loss, and and that's what motivated. I I I don't want to interrupt what you're saying, but here I've always no, I've, no, told, I've told people I said there's a difference between loving to win and hating to lose, and I think all great champions ha- hate to lose. They love the game. They just hate to lose. So, for example, nobody chases down a ball with every ounce of their being to get into the court and thinks, you know, I just sure love running around the court. You know their their thought process. There is no way on this planet I'm losing this point because I can't stand. You know that kind of emotion drives you to move. 
Well, the, the, the pain of loss or understanding that it's going to be painful if you lose, I mean, that does, it did drive my practice. Okay. My practice was designed to avoid losing. I mean, that's why, I mean, I knew that, that the more balls I hit, the, the higher my probabilities were of winning in the future. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the two sides of the coin, the pain of loss, one side is it's very motivating, uh, and, and it can motivate you during the match, too. I mean, you, it, it's not uh, normal and, uh, what should I say, easy to concentrate very hard for two, three, four hours at a stretch. I mean, nobody wants to do that. It's hard work. Uh, but if you don't do it, you're going to lose. So... That, that gives you motivation to do such things. Uh, on the other hand, this pain of loss brings fear into the equation, which, uh, what's the fear? The fear is of losing. That's what the fear is. And so uh, it takes a game that should be just fun and uh, can turn it into something stressful and fearful. And so that's the negative part of the pain of losing is, is the, the fear generation, uh, which you, you try to overcome. I mean, I, I don't think I realized at the time when I was playing that, that you needed to take steps to overcome it. For instance, if, if I were playing now, I would be saying to myself, you know, during the pressure parts of these matches, I would say, it's a game. It's fun. Nothing's going to happen to me if I lose. Don't worry about it. It's right. just fun, this whole process. And try deliberately to enjoy it, to maybe even enjoy the pressure. Say to yourself, this is why I'm playing, so that I can be under this pressure. If I hadn't reached this level or hadn't practiced a lot, I, you know, I'd, there'd be no pressure. I'd be slaughtered. But, you know. <laughs> right. No, that's right. I, I've asked for this. Pressure is a privilege. It, yeah. And I'm getting it. Uh, I guess uh, there was a point that you were alluding to, uh, and that is uh, people don't like losing. Okay, that's the, the, the whole mental issue of this is, are you going to lose or are you going to win? Uh, and, and, and I do tell people that I consult with, I'll say, well, look at, you know, the, the risk is losing. Now, if you don't want to lose, one way to do it is to never play <laughs> anybody that's any good. Don't play. Yeah, right. just, yeah, no, just pick worse opponents. Play weaker tournaments where there's nobody any good in the tournament. You know, that way you're guaranteed to win. But, of course, then it's no fun at all. So, uh, of course, that's what I do now. Actually, when I, when, <laughs> I, when I play now, I won't play anybody that can beat me. <laughs> <laughs> I only pick opponents that I can beat. You know, because I don't like losing, uh, and 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 it, it's not going to be a pleasant after. I, you think I'm kidding, actually, but yeah, I, <laughs> well, I won't pl- play young, strong guys. Right, right. Tennis players <laughs> over time, no they kind of, they size it up. It's a pecking order. They understand. Yeah, so, and I don't understand. You know, people are always trying to like find better players to play with, where you can get yourself beaten. I I, I don't understand that. Uh, for instance. Uh, you know, they have these like pro-am events where, you know, you give a bit of money to the university and then you play doubles on a Sunday afternoon with the team. You know, 
I would never do that. I would never. It isn't the money, by the way. But I, I don't want to be out there on the court trying to beat guys that can that are ten times better than I am. I mean, I, I, I would just as soon, you know, uh, run full speed into my wall. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You know, why would I do that? You know, it is impossible. And all that happens when you play those kind of, I mean, play guys better than you is they they play with you for a while, and then when they want to beat you, they put the hammer down. You know, I, I used to be on the other side of that at one time when I was, you know, in college and right. shortly after that, you know, I'd play these pro-am and, and, and I, I can just recall the, the amateur trying to get at me. Well, it wasn't going to happen. There's no right. chance. Right. You know, all you do is, you know, you go along with them until you want to, until you want to put the wood to them. Right. And so I don't like being on that other side. Well, this is play such things. yeah. This is some great stuff. If you just turned in, uh, tuned in, you're listening to the uh, Coach Steve Clark PhD show with Alan Fox, uh, PhD in psychology, former world class player, coach of Brad Gilbert, uh, Pepperdine University uh, coach. Uh, he's who basically developed that program into one of the top programs in the country at the time, and then he's uh, author and consultant. And be sure to share the podcast um, as well as uh, the website and go there for blogs, etc. cetera. Um, and that's CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. Um, you also find some uh, links to Wilson Tennis Products, etc. But uh, I want to talk about problems of finishing, and we're going to talk about uh, upcoming here. We're going to talk about problems of finishing, uh, choking, uh, confidence and how to get it or how to play when you don't have it and maintaining a mental effectiveness um, on the tennis court. But this uh, problem of finishing, um, you know, you talk about it's not a matter of fear of winning, which some people say, which is kind of an odd one, but it's the fear of losing, which we've talked about. And, um, you know, you mentioned it's a personal test. and you know, It's a kind of an affront to us. We say, do we have what it takes to push through on big matches? And you won't know until we do. Um, what are your thoughts, you know, on that, and particularly with no ad scoring or, um, and, uh, you know, along those lines, is that ad pressure, the problem of finishing or just your thoughts on that? Well, tennis, uh, has, has a unique scoring system, which makes the game more difficult than, than most games. Also, it's a unique scoring system where the points don't count the same. Uh, in, in the other sports, they count the same. For instance, a touchdown in football is six points, no matter when you get it. Okay. And you just add them all up and, and, and you see who's got the most points at the end of it. In tennis, it's not like that. In tennis, there are some points that are more important than other points. I mean, obviously game point is more important than the first point of the game. You know, the 30-40 or 40-30 point, uh, because you win the whole game then. Uh, and so there, there are these situations where you need to finish uh, some task uh, before you move on. Uh, and so there's a lot of, quote, finishing situations in tennis. Game point is a finishing situation. You're going to win the game or you aren't. Uh, set point is a finishing situation. Match point, a finishing situation. And... And uh, tennis being the, the way it is and, and with, with the potential for your opponent to come back 
the the finish tends to be stressful. Now, uh, the the uh, expression, you know, if someone's afraid to win, they 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 say that because uh, when when the pressure is liable to be felt the most is when you're ahead and about to finish, and that needs some sort of explanation because it doesn't really make sense. Uh, for instance, choking is a fear situation, and you tend to choke when you're ahead. But what is the fear? I mean, the, the fear is the fear of losing. So when you're ahead, it seems paradoxical that, that the fear of losing would enter into it. So it must be something else, uh, or it's some uh, iteration of the fear of losing. And but but I, I would say nobody's afraid to win. Winning is a lot of fun. I mean, of course, we all want to win. No one's afraid of it. But what we're afraid of is that we have the opportunity to win, but we may uh, we may not be able to finish it off, and our opponent escapes and comes back to beat us. And so that's what the fear is 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 the the fear of you got them. Now all you got to do is win a few points, and it's over. And when you start thinking like that, it starts to feel like pressure. Well, you give some advice. You give advice in the book. What do you do then when you're in that situation, the problem of finishing? Like, for example, you mentioned redouble your efforts or forewarned is forearmed. So what what advice do you give people? Well, uh, first, uh, it's it's best to not uh, focus your your attention on score so much. it's better generally to focus your attention on on uh, performance, you know, on watching the ball, on on relaxing, on keeping your hands loose, on uh, running low, running loose. Uh, the things that help you uh, actually execute uh, in, in the very short run are the things to concentrate on. Uh, those things and and your emotional control, no feeling or reaction at the end of a point, for instance, that's controllable. Uh, what isn't controllable is is it's a big point. I need to win it. Uh, that's not controllable, and that makes you nervous when you start thinking like that. You know, you, you you're in the Wimbledon final, and it's thirty forty on your opponent's serve match point for you. Now, if you start thinking about, if I just win this one point, I win Wimbledon, okay? I just have to win this point. Well, you can't be sure you're going to win that point. And the more you think about the outcome, uh, the more you're going to get nervous. It's better, it would be better at that situ- in that situation to go watch the ball, wait forward, watch the ball, watch him bounce it, watch it come off the court. Keep your hands loose. You know, little cheese that might help you execute in the next few seconds as opposed to uh, whether you're going to win the match or win the point. Uh, So now, no matter what I say, nobody's going to forget about winning the match. And you're not going to forget that it's match point. Uh, So even if I tell you to focus on execution, uh, rather than outcome, you, you, outcome never leaves your mind totally. 
but but I, I look at it like most uh, I shouldn't say most problems, but there there are certain problems that are not solvable. No matter what you do, you can't solve certain problems. Like I would like to live forever. Okay, but I know that's not solvable. I'm not gonna. All right, no one will solve that problem. Uh, and, and also, the the problem of worrying about the outcome or thinking about the outcome that's never going to go away entirely. But you can make it worse by focusing on it directly and not controlling it. Uh, and and so you you have the choice of of having uh, of, of playing it worse or playing it better. And so you 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 pick playing it better as opposed to solving a problem completely. You you can't, but you can make it better. Right. Well, I, I, one thing I mentioned to the guys sometimes is, uh, you know, big as a watermelon. I just remember when I was playing one time, uh, you know, I, I wasn't quite seeing the ball well, and it was, you know, big points. I said, man, I just got to see how big can I see that ball? And, and I watch him pick up the ball, uh-huh. put, put it in the pocket, bounce it. Yeah. You just You zone in on that thing and just make it as big as a watermelon. And so I can uh, I can understand what you're saying. What about you mentioned? What if you're down and you're returning? You mentioned in there you say never miss the return. Now I I don't know how many times we tell ourselves that or you tell players that you say, hey, look, man, let's get just get the return in. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean chip the return? Does it mean, you know, what advice would you give to players? Because that's a lot of times players overhit on that shot and they go, well, they hit a good serve. And I go, well, no, actually, you allowed you know him to hit a pretty mediocre serve. You just went for too much. And it's a matter of what advice would you give to somebody to say, hey, get that return in? Does that mean push? Does that mean chip? Does it mean do whatever it takes? What do you mean by that statement? Yeah, uh, what I'm, uh, and actually I'm going to just sort of, uh, what should I say, retract, uh, retract what I said, if I said it, uh, that you, you need to get the return in. Uh, you, that that's not should not be the focus uh, of of the uh, of the exercise. Uh, it, focusing that's again. If you focus, I, I need to get the return in. That's focusing on the outcome, which you can't totally control. So what right. you would focus on is your strategy. In other words, you'd go. You know, I'm going to play uh, slightly more conservatively. I'm not going to go for the winner up the line off the server. Team. Right, I think that's uh, what you mean. You're, yeah, I think by when you say that in the book, yeah, I think that's the tone. It's like the goal is don't miss the return on those things, but how do you do that? You don't focus on because you, yeah. like you say you can't control that, but I can increase the probability by doing X, Y, and Z. Right, by not not playing a uh, a loose point or a uh, a low probability uh, strategy. You know, there's lots of low probability ways to play the point. I mean, the more when you're down, the more you want to play a high probability uh, point because your opponent at that stage is under pressure. They're trying to they're now in the pressure situation of trying to finish. And so the last thing you want to do when your opponent's under pressure is to give away the point. You know, you want your opponent to have to play for it. So uh, on a 40-30 point when your opponent's up, you know, you try to play a more conservative return. Uh, that doesn't mean you dink it or, you know, poke it. You just you, you, you adopt a strategy that's higher percentage. You may hit an extra cross court or two uh, off your backhand before taking it up the line. Uh, a lot of people under that situation, they'll take a high risk. 
you know, because they think they're in trouble or whatever. Uh, but right. but the time to take the risk when is when you're you, you're ahead, not when you're behind. Yeah. You move on and you talk about choking, and, and I love this statement uh, because you say, you know, you know, we want a positive outcome, but fear, you know, it's not going to happen, and that's when, you know, as you mentioned before, this is when these things start going sideways. But you make a great point. You say, assume nothing extraordinary has happened. Everybody's done it to some degree, and just plug along, realize you can choke, and win anyway. And uh, it also choking does not mean you have a loser mentality champions do it so i think it's just really key that when you say you know that it happens and people win anyway and if you ask people how many of you have you know choked or gotten tight and still won the match if people just remember that when they're playing it's kind of like having a little bank account in your back pocket you go you know what i've been here before i've done this you know it is what it is let's move on um any 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 thoughts on that yeah i mean what what really kills you uh with regards to choking is when you choke and then get discouraged. You know, it's choke, choking and followed by discouragement, which leads you to losing. Uh, choking by itself is just the loss of a point. Uh, it, it, it isn't a reflection on character or anything of the sort. And, and, and I try to make the point in the book of all the great champions that choke so that you don't feel it's a disgrace. Uh, to have choked and that there's some uh, personality defect that you have that makes you a loser and a choker uh, because you, you you want to accept the choke the way, same way you'd accept a forehand error in a ground stroke rally. You know, you made a mistake with your forehand. So what? You know, you have to go back, play the next point, assume the forehand will be fine. I mean, you're reliant on... on reactions and habits and 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 so the habit itself is basically good and you 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 figure the same thing with the choking you know sometimes you choke uh but it doesn't mean you'll choke the next time so uh again you'll tend to choke when you're ahead if you do then your opponent catches up uh but you're still even and so at that point if you keep your foot on the accelerator you know, you can get into the uh, into the finishing position again, and each time you get into it, uh, your chances of coming through go up. I mean, I, I, I was so motivated that I was a choker. That was, if I had to think of my biggest weakness as a competitor, it was choking because uh, I wanted to win almost too much. Uh, and and, and uh, but but anyway. to, to your point though, I mean, even if you admit that you you were quarterfinals at Wimbledon, so that's that's the point you made is like, hey, even if it happens, it doesn't define you. You still win, you can still win, and that goes that goes yeah. back to the next point here is uh, you talk about confidence and how to get it if you don't have it. Well, you mentioned you can still win without confidence, and I think that is just dead on because a lot of people think you know I'm not confident, and, and that's almost like. Yeah, that's kind of an excuse to not play well. And a lot of times I'll have players and people, I'll, I'll say, okay, I want you to write a list of 20 successes in your life, or 30 or 40, depending on the group. 
And what they do uh-huh. is they'll write them down, and I go, look at all these successes. Look at all, you know, whether it's music or school or math or just, you know, whatever it is, you know, awards or it doesn't have to be awards, but, you know, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I mean, whatever it is. But the point is, those are all successes. So you can't tell me you don't have confidence in yourself because confidence are transferable from one skill to the other. And so it doesn't matter if you, you know, if your forehand's off, use your backhand. Doesn't matter if your serve's off, use your forehand. That's that's how Brad beat uh, Becker. You know, he went after his forehand. Once Becker's forehand fell apart, Becker had no backup. You know, so it's it's uh, the type of thing where, you know, I think you hit this dead on and. Uh, um, and you said all you need to believe is victory is possible. It's just a probability. And uh, anyways, if you could uh, expand on those, because I think that's just a great point. Yeah, well, confidence is is is, is an issue that you can't totally control. In fact, you, you really can't control it very much at all. Uh, and so I think everybody knows that, that when you're confident, you play better, and you're more likely to come through on the bigger point. Uh, when you're unconfident, that's you know when you tend to choke more and so forth. But you can't you can't totally control it. I mean, confidence tends to come when you get wins, and and of course, since you can't make sure you're going to get wins, you can't make sure you're going to be confident. So I think as a as a competitor, you do have to recognize that confidence will come and go. All right. Uh, you'll never remain confident, even though you've had some wins, and you won't remain unconfident if you've had losses. And so the, the trick is to kind of get through the times when you're not confident. Uh, and, and the first way I used to get through it, number one, is I recognized it was cyclical. I actually did, even when I was playing. I would have a, an unconfident period. Uh, in fact, the year I got to the quarters at Wimbledon, I was going through a, a, a confidence uh, deficit. I had, for about the month before that, I had been losing close matches, uh, choking, basically. And, and since I, I didn't have much success for a month, you know, I tended to choke more. Uh, and, and, but, but I knew all along that if I stayed disciplined, uh, that it would eventually turn around for what reasons I'm never sure. But, but, uh, th- th- there was, uh, I-, I was at least, uh, positive and hopeful that it would turn around at some point. And you just don't know when that's going to be. So you, you, you think maybe this match, maybe this match. And so it, it was weird. It, the week before Wimbledon, I played at Queens club. And I think in the second round, I played one of the high seas, a guy named Lundqvist from Sweden, uh, and he beat me three and four. Uh, and then he was the third seed at Wimbledon that year. Uh, and in the first round, I had a good win. I played a guy that was number 10 in the United States, a guy named Tom Edlison, who was a good player. Uh, and I beat him in four sets. And that kind of started to turn things around. And then I played Lundqvist in the next round. Again, I just lost him the week before. Uh, but this time it was windy and cold and a, a very difficult day to play tennis on. And, and we started late uh, in the afternoon. And so it had sort of changed the equation. It became more of a scrambling situation than big power situation, which Lundqvist was a big guy with a lot of power. 
But in, in a lot of wind, that didn't help them. Okay, Your big serves don't do well in high wind. Uh, and so it, it sort of cut him down to size a little bit, and I managed to scramble through him. And once I did that, everything changed. You know, suddenly, instead of being unconfident, I was very confident. Uh, and so I, in the next round, I played a guy named Gene Scott, who was number five in the United States, and I beat him easily, which I thought I was going to beat him easily, and I did. Yeah, I suddenly become confident for no good reason, particularly. But that's how I felt the rest of the tournament. I was just just confident. Uh, but but what what made it all work was recognizing that that confidence is cyclical, and number two, keeping better control of the emotion than usual, because when your confidence is low, you're going to tend to get emotional quicker. You know, you get upset with an easy miss. Uh, sooner than you would when you're confident. You're confident you just brush it off. When you're when you're not, you have to discipline yourself. So I knew what to do about it, which was the savior for me. That's uh, that makes sense. I no, guess no, that's great. I think yeah, the, the, the understanding that it's cyclical, it comes and goes, and that emotional discipline, and that starts in practice. You got to be emotionally disciplined in practice, and that's uh, that's a big part of it. So. Um, you mentioned on Chapter 8 when you're talking about game plans. I'll just kind of give a quote here. It says, you do not have to be a better – you do not have to be better than your opponent at everything, just one thing. And the most common mistake is choosing offense when it should be defense. Those are great points. Um, you know, in the game plan, you talk about sustaining, you know, this range of, uh, you know – the type of uh, you know shots you're hitting, you know the ebbs and flows. Anyways, if you could give maybe some advice along those lines of you know the person feels like, hey, you know my forehand isn't this, or you know I'm missing this, but really all you need is one thing and do it well that day. That's all that matters. Yeah, uh, I think in terms of game plan, the first uh, the first cut at it is is more is is global. In other words, first you decide. You're trying to figure out generally how you win the point. And the most general uh, consideration would be, you know, are you going to win most of the points through your opponent's errors or through your good shots, through hitting winners, or, you know, you're going to do it more by attrition. Uh, you have to decide, you know, which way you're going to go as an overall approach. And then you'd get specifically as how you're going to do it. Uh, and, and that quote uh, about defense and offense and so forth, uh, what, what I was driving at there was at the lowest level, at the lower levels of the game, at the recreational level, generally defense has the edge over offense. Okay. And, and, and the reason is, is that at the lower levels, you're not that accurate and your strokes are not that well refined. And so if you try to, to go for offense, you're going to be taking risks. You're going to hit it closer to the line, closer to the net. And when your skill level is not that high, you're going to make too many mistakes. And so at the low levels, you know, it pays to give yourself good net clearance and be prepared for attrition to outlast the opponent. Right. Even at the high levels, though, for example, just following that advice, don't confuse offense with defense. It could be, you know, we, we, uh, I call it, or, you know, I've heard it called before. I think it's pretty apropos. Don't use a bazooka to kill a squirrel. Uh, 
you know, it's you don't well, you don't need to hit a Mach five forehand approach if you just get it in the court. If the guy comes in that, maybe he's not a great volleyer. Force him to volley down the line instead of cross court. If you hit down the line, he just has a, you know, every blind squirrel, you know, every now and then a blind squirrel can find a nut. So if you hit the ball down the line and all he has to do is lunge for it, that ball's not coming back to you. It's going to go cross court. But if you force him to hit down the line, you know, on a volley, a lot of people aren't very good at a high backhand down the line volley. So sometimes it's or, or it's, a low one. Yeah, or a low one. Yeah. So uh, you know, you're on the run scrambling. Do you try and blast a winner? You know, the guys on the baseline or the girls on the baseline? No, you put the ball in the center of the court or you know get it back. I think. So I think it's a apropos for even uh, high level players when sometimes they think, you know, I can just rip this shot. And you know, it's funny. I, I one time had a player who was top five in doubles in the country and. As a freshman, though, you know, he didn't really know how to c- construct, you know, singles points. But a, f- a friend of mine who, you know, if I if I mentioned his name, was watching a match. He played at Cal and he was he was there and he, he came to me and he said, hey, he must have hit that shot once in his life. You know, he was like 10 feet. Uh, ten, he was 10 feet behind the baseline. He tried to hit this angle winner. And it's like, what the heck was that? Well, yeah, he might have hit it in a, in a total, you know, lackadaisical manner. And then he goes, well, I'll try it now. Well, it was the wrong shot. He should have just put the thing in the court and then rebound. Well, his senior year, he had to play some grueling matches and he became, you know, top 75 in the country and, you know, which his freshman year, he would have never conceived of that. But he had to actually beat people that were grinders, which he hated. He wanted to be able to serve and volley and and kind of end points quickly. But that's where he turned the the, the table was. He actually learned how to restart points, you know, have really good defense, then get into offense. Whoops, there's a lob. Restart the point, and et cetera. So I think it, uh, your, your comment, you know, uh, can is appropriate on, you know, multiple levels. So I even read well, that. Let, my... let, me re, let me refine it a little bit yeah. uh, about offense at the higher level. And, and that is, if you make too many mistakes, no matter what level you're at, you're going to lose. Okay, so you can't you can't afford to you know make unjustified errors even at high levels. But as you get better and you get more accurate, it starts to pay you to push your game a bit. Okay, now there you're trying to get control of the point. You're trying to get uh, your hands around your opponent's neck a bit, and 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 control the point and push them around and maybe end up hitting a winner. Uh, so that's the thought. In, in the meantime, you, you, you mustn't take uh, an unnecessary risk where you, 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 you miss too soon. But, but the thought goes to offense at the higher levels because your opponent, you know, if you don't hurt them, they're going to hurt you. And so at the lower levels, you can just body punch someone down. I mean, right. that's why at, at the low levels, everybody hates pushers. Uh, why because there's nothing they can do about it they're they're not good enough to blow them out and so they they overhit and they try to blow them out and of course they come up short Uh, at the high levels you can't just dink it in and expect your opponent to miss I mean at the high levels they're going to attack you and get you so that's what I meant by offense I don't mean unrestrained offense Right. I mean uh, offense within, but I mean that's your o- your overall thought is is attack. Uh, on the pro tour, it's you know obviously uh, you can't win with total defense. It's going to be offense, but it has to be controlled offense. 
Right, right. Um, I should add one other thing, and, and that is there, there's a level that you can play at uh, in terms of, you know, uh, how far away from the net and how far away from the lines and so forth. Uh, there's a level that you can play at where you make relatively few errors. And as you uh, increase the, uh, the level of risk you take, as you get closer to the lines and closer to the net, it, your error rate starts to go up. Uh, but, but you'll reach a point where it goes up dramatically. If you, if you push your game above a certain level, you know, you're going to get a very dramatic increase in, in errors. Uh, and so you must, when you're playing a match, you must never push into that range. In other words, your game can only support so much risk. And then above that, you know, the, the errors make it impossible to win pretty much. And that's and so, cyclical as well. I mean, you know, some days you're on, and yes. and you got you got to recognize and say, well, you know, for I, I, you know, I can hit that ball. Well, today you can't, you know, hit it that way. Right. So maybe just take the throttle off it a little bit. Yeah, that's a tricky one, but quite true. In other words, this, that'll vary from match to match. You know what that level exactly is, and it'll vary around uh, during the single match right. as to what you can go for and what you can't. I mean, for instance. Like being the the choker that I was, uh, I I had to discover how to return serve when I got nervous. For instance, when I was playing at UCLA, my coach J.D. Morgan told me used to tell me and everybody else that when the guy misses, when your opponent misses the first serve, you got to hurt him off the second serve. Okay, and so what I did when I was at UCLA was. I hit my backhand return, which is what you're going to hit off the second serve virtually all the time. Uh, I'd hit my backhand flat or top spin. You know, I tried to hit it hard off the second serve. Uh, and what I found over the years was that because I get nervous, uh, going for a big return on a second serve on a big point, I made too many mistakes. Okay, I could do it if it wasn't an important point. If I wasn't nervous, I could I could slash the second serve return, you know, and make it with reasonable, you know, reasonable regu- regularity. But on, when it got tense and tight, I, I made too many mistakes. So I went to the chip return off my backhand on, on all of them unless I felt good. And so I, I, what was happening was I was just above my level of control when I got nervous trying to hit the return off the backhand, couldn't do it or not. I could do it, but not enough. And so you sort of have to know what you're capable of, you know, what the percentages are for you uh, in various situations. So you got, you got to have your eyes open, uh, which again is, is something that most people are not great at that. They, they, uh, don't totally analyze, you know, what they can do and what they can't do and when they can do it and when they can't do it. Uh, these are things I guess Brad Gilbert was very good at since it wasn't obvious how he beat anybody. You couldn't <laughs> tell by looking. You know, he, 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 I, I thought he had no chance. And uh, Now, here's an experienced coach. Uh, I thought Gilbert had no chance of making a living as a pro tennis player. 
and he played for me at Pepperdine, so I saw him play plenty. But I didn't understand at that time, actually, that that uh, judgment is such a huge part of the game. I mean, I knew it was part of the game, but I didn't realize, for instance, what Gilbert had, or has, he had the most extraordinary judgment. In other words, he would not hit the ball one mile an hour too hard or one inch closer to the line than necessary to to get the job done. Kind of like you were saying earlier, you know, you don't use a bazooka to to beat a, a cockroach. <laughs> uh, so, which I don't mean to say your opponent's a cockroach, <laughs> but but anyway, Gilbert wouldn't, you know, and you can't see that from off the court. You can't see that the guy is playing right at the peak of his game, but not above it, you know, and that each shot is uh, uh, the highest probability uh, judgment call you can make. Uh, But when you multiply, when you take someone like Gilbert and you multiply that little edge over every shot that's hit in a rally, I mean, you might have a 10, 15 shot rally, each shot he's he's, played the odds in his favor uh, uh, maximally. 100%. 100%. You know, the opponent maybe not. And so over a period of a long match, those probabilities added up, and he'd beat guys, and you couldn't see how he did it. Well, that, you know? that's uh, that's exactly what you make your point uh, going on into Chapter 10 when you talk about maintaining mental effectiveness. You say never do anything on the court that doesn't help you to win. And then you, you give examples of, you know, if you just uh, – you know, we know now statistically between some matches, there's only like a one-point differential in terms of the number of points won. And in your book, you mentioned even just 5%. You say that's – if you give away needlessly one point every other game, it adds up to six points, which is enough to turn from a winner to a loser. And it's the idea of – it's not just the shot selection, but it's the emotional control. It's like what you're just saying here. It's the recognizing things. That you're, uh, you want to do everything possible, obviously, to do what it takes to win, but you make the comment, never do anything on the court that does not help you to win. And being a good self-monitor of those things is critical. It sounds like that's what you're saying about Brad. He just had a, a great uh, knack for that. Yeah, actually, I was making a slightly different point about Brad. What, what, okay. what I, the point I was making out with Brad was that every shot you hit, there's a calculation to be made. Uh, you make it unconsciously and very quickly. But, uh, you know, let's say your opponent hits his forehand down the line. You have a backhand. You have the whole court open for a moment. Uh, there's an infinite number of uh, shot selection choices you can make. You can hit it hard and close to the line, and your chance probability of hitting a winner is maximal. But your probability of missing it is also maximal. And so you could hit it way away from the lines in the net, and your probability of hitting a winner goes way down, but your probability of missing it goes down. And so somewhere between those two is the uh, exactly best calculation. And and taken into account in that is how good your how fast your opponent can run, and how good your opponent's backhand is. I mean, if your opponent's got a great backhand, you know. You want to take more risk because if he gets to it, he can do more. And so all these things are calculated in a, in a microsecond uh, by a good player. 
which Gilbert would make that calculation. That's what I was talking about, you know, uh, relative to Gilbert. The, the, the comment on don't do anything that doesn't help you win was, was aimed more at emotional response. In right. other words, people will tend to get emotional and then they'll do things that are counterproductive. Right. You know, like get mad or, you know, argue about calls and get all upset or whatever. Or, Tank, or, or over hit the ball to kind of one up the guy who just hit you because you're mad. I mean, it's, you just wasted your right. point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now you're playing a game you shouldn't be playing, which is to a dominate your opponent or, or play mind games with them in some way. Uh, I mean, object win match. Right. You know, I, what I'd like to do is uh, if we can, uh, the last pretty much question I want to talk about here is uh, the value of optimism in Chapter 11. You talk about this. You go on and talk uh, about you about parents and some other things uh, in the book, and they can get the book to read those. Uh, but the one thing I think is just a great uh, point you make here, and we can maybe uh, wrap this all up in terms of the optimism. You say, you know, it's it's a huge advantage energy-wise. Optim- you know, optimists are not unaware of negative thoughts. They just choose to focus on the positive ones. But here's a really great comment you make. You say it's the most valuable tool is hope. There's no rational reason to ever lose hope during the course of a match. And you even talk about, you know, Chang versus Lendl. You say the question of victory or not is always a matter of probability, not certainty. And I had to ask my players if they remember that. Well, most of them didn't know who Chang, or I hadn't seen him play or Lendl. But, uh, you know, that... That's so. That's so uh, critical is this idea of hope and the probability. Yeah, I think when people get discouraged, for instance, discouragement is basically a lie. You're lying to yourself uh, because your emotions have gotten out of whack because things aren't going well. But uh, when people get discouraged or they tank, they think they are going to lose. Uh, so they're they're applying a hundred percent probability to the loss, and so what's the use of trying? This ain't my day, kind of thinking, uh, which is always a lie. For it's you're never going to lose for sure unless you tank. I mean, otherwise there's some chance of winning, and so as a competitor, your your choices. If you're going to stay on the court, I mean, if you if there's no chance, you might as well walk off the court. Uh, but as long as you're staying on the court, then it, you, you, there is some chance you'll win. And, and since the emotions are going to uh, factor in on your on your performance, it, it, it's best to to focus on the fact that you could come back, or things could turn, or whatever. Because those are those are real uh, probabilistic things. They certainly can happen. Uh, it's never a hundred percent you're going to lose, so there's nothing to get discouraged about. All, all that's happening when when you get behind is your probabilities uh, start to go get smaller of winning. Uh, they never go to zero; they just get smaller. But so what? You know, <laughs> you, <laughs> right. you don't get executed if you lose. Right. No death right. penalty for losing tennis matches. Right. So right. you're just playing with the probabilities. There's never a, a point in in throwing the match away. That makes no sense. Right. 
Well, Alan, um, all things need to come to an end, and man, uh, this was this was great, and I so appreciate you coming on the show. So just just thanks for uh, taking the time out of your day and your walking schedule. I know it's raining, so I appreciate you um, just spending the time uh, with me today. Well, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I may have gotten a little windy there no, uh, from time to time. Not at all. But uh, it, it's been helpful because I'm, I'm doing my walk as we talk. So, uh, <laughs> it, 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 there's some productiveness coming out of it in several ways. So thank you for having me, Steve. <laughs> yeah, it's, no uh, problem. Well, folks, you've, uh, been, you've been listening to the pleasure. coach... You've been uh, listening to the Coach Steve Clark PhD show with uh, Dr. Alan Fox. He's a former world-class uh, player, coach of Brad Gilbert, and basically the developer of the Pepperdine University tennis program, sports psychologist, author, and consultant. And be sure to like it, share uh, the podcast on my website with your friends at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. You'll find blogs there, podcasts, resources, and video discussion and more, including some Wilson uh, uh, product information. Um, also, uh, welcome your comments and questions, and you can reach me at uh, steve at coachsteveclarkphd.com. And I leave you with uh, this thought that I've penned on uh, many pictures um, and items around our uh, team room, etc., is rare greatness comes at a steep price. Mediocrity is abundant and cheap. Uh, and if you always, yeah. I have, in fact, I have a discussion on my uh, blog post about each one of those components. So, um, as I end the show, yeah, each time Brian Brothers music comes up, and uh, as I always say, let her rip. 